Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, where it is back to school season here in the nation's capital. I know across the country, different start dates for different folks. Some people are already back at school, and I have some teacher friends who are getting back into it this week. Very eagerly looking forward to the 2021-2022 school year. And of course, we wish everybody well who is going back, whether you've already started or are heading back next week after Labor Day. And of course, this year has some new challenges presented by the fourth wave of the pandemic. And of course, we hope everybody stays safe in the midst of what is going on across the country. But it's also a time right now to reflect on some of the systemic and structural issues that exist in our education system. And that is the subject of a new book by Habiba Cooper Jallo entitled Black in School. And this is a memoir of her experience in high school and the anti-black racism that she found throughout her educational years. And it really highlights both the overt racism that exists both on the day-to-day cultural level within a school, but also the systemic racism that's there, the lack of representation, for instance. And, And Habiba talks about that and the need for meaningful representation in classrooms and really the the damage that can be done to young people who are impacted by the levels of racism that they experience and have to confront on a daily basis as they go to school. So the book is both profiling this experience while also being a call to action for how we can all work together to root out these issues and ensure that schools are safe, welcoming places for everybody to come and learn. So this is a conversation that I've been looking forward to for a while. And I was so grateful to Habiba for her time and offering her insights into this. So let's get right into my discussion with Habiba Cooper Jallo. All right. And Habiba Cooper Jallo joins me now from Halifax. Habiba, how are you today? I'm well, Sean. How are you? I am doing well. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today to talk about Black in School, your new book, which is coming out this Saturday, September the 4th, 2021. This one has been on my radar uh, since the spring when I was going through the University of Regina Press catalog. I actually reached out to Lohi, who does some of the publicity and, and sets up these interviews for us. I reached out to him in the spring when I first saw this. So this has been on my radar for a while. I'm very excited to talk to you about mm-hmm. the book. And I'm excited to be on your show. Well, well, thank you. Uh, we're yes. Again, excited to have you here. So this is a little different from the typical book that we talk about on this show, which tends to be historically researched material and presented in a very similar structure to other books that, that come along. But this one's different because it, it talks a lot about personal experiences and how you navigated the educational system growing up. So I'm just curious, from your perspective, how would you describe the book to anyone who might come to it, who, who's going to read it? What should an audience expect when they pick this up? So I would describe Black in School as a memoir-style expose that explores high school as a, as a difficult space for Black students, um, a difficult space in many ways, mentally, socially, physically. And what, what readers can expect from it is um, a lot of truth, a lot of humor, as much as it is heavy in that it deals with uh, difficult content, content that might be uncomfortable for some. It is very much a light read. It's very, um, it's very funny. And it's, it's, uh, it's something I think many people will enjoy reading. So how do you find moments of humor in this? I'm curious, because uh, again, when you read the description, and anyone who, who might read the description of this book, it, it talks extensively about how it, it talks about anti-black racism in schools, the racial profiling, police brutality in schools, and 
at the the end of the description, it says this could shock, appall, and, and animate people towards action. So where do you, as, as the author, find those moments of humor? And how important is it to include humor, both in the storytelling, but also you as a person navigating these experiences in the moment? How important was humor to you as mm-hmm. a, just a, a way to get through the day? Mm-hmm. You know, because some of the experiences um, were so difficult, so traumatizing, Many of them came as a shock to me. I think in writing about them, um, I was able to inject some of my humor sort of in in my final analysis of what occurred Um, in the sense that, you know, I really think writing, it's a form of release. People who keep uh, journals or diaries, uh, they would understand that that it's really I think an excellent form of release of just putting your thoughts on paper and in doing so you're able to look at some of your personal experiences um, from an external view you know as a kind of third party just observing what's happened and I think in doing that you're able to realize you know it's not the end of the world and, and I think actually putting some humor, infusing some humor into it helps deal with, um, helps one deal with it, helps one deal with, I guess, the uh, the tragedy or the difficult nature of it. So that's where, as the author, I see a lot of humor in it. Um, if I think of some of the, the chapters, some of the diary entries, when I thought about what the actual experience was or a certain incident that I had experienced on a particular day, sometimes I just thought to myself, wow, this is actually so ridiculous, you know? And in writing about it, I was, uh, I was able to, to get a sense of just how ridiculous uh, a certain incident was. And, and I think that's where the humor came in. And how much would you say is drawn from your experience? You are very well accomplished as a a writer, storyteller. When you look at the awards, the the profile, your biography, it shows just how good of a storyteller you are. So how much of this is purely your experiences or have you taken the opportunity to potentially include experiences from some of your friends, colleagues at school, and just to, to incorporate other people's perspectives or is this a 100% your experience your memoir of going through school mm-hmm. thank you it's um 100% my experience it's 100% my memoir if I'm referring to someone else's experience um as a way to connect it to my experience that's very obvious it's very clear uh but it is 100% based on my day-to-day experience getting up leaving the house getting on the bus, getting off the bus, walking into school, and then doing the same thing at the end of the day, going home. It's, it's really much um, a day-to-day account of my lived experience. And is there a, a particular story or an experience that is included in the book that, it, maybe this is an unfair question, but that you you typically use as an example of what, your daily life was like is there is there such a thing as a representative example that you draw when you're explaining to people what is or what was going on and what continues to go on in schools and affects black students across the country Mm -hmm. yeah there are so many so without giving away the juicy bits because you know you want everyone to read it (laughs) uh (laughs) so i'd say without giving that away there, there, there is a chapter where students are trying to carry out a certain initiative, like a, a charitable initiative for people in Africa. And um, I, I found the framework a little problematic in terms of how they plan to, to, to carry it out. And I expressed that and it was met with resistance. And then I tried to explain why I felt that way. And it was hard for them to understand, honestly. So that chapter is a good example of just the day-to-day and, and, and coming from, I guess, different points of understanding and it really being hard for some students to, um, 
to get just why certain things were problematic or um, outright offensive, you know. So, yeah, there, there are definitely many examples of that. Well, well, it seems to me that a lot of examples that I've heard of in terms of, and we'll talk about microaggressions in a little bit, but things that come up are even additional questions that are asked of students of color that are not asked of uh, white students in, in particular. And this is one that I'm conscious of when I'm in, in classes and teaching the question, uh, I like to start each class uh, with everyone goes around and you introduce yourself and the question of where are you from? And I, I think of it as, well, everyone is from somewhere, but oftentimes I, the, the example that gets used is, well, after a, a student of color says, well, I'm from Ottawa, someone will say, oh, no, where are you really from? Right. And those sorts of things that come up and that are are othering and it presents the idea that you don't belong, which, of course, is is not true. But is that the sort of stuff that is referenced? And is that part of your experience as well? Almost the, the questioning of everything that comes up that mm-hmm. that marginalizes your experiences? Mm-hmm. Yes, without a doubt. In school, outside of school, that's part of my day-to-day experience. That's part of every Black person in Canada's day-to-day experience. Even those Black people who have been here from the beginning of, of Canada as a concept, you know, um, those Black mm-hmm. people who have been here pre-Confederation. And, you know, I happen to be living in Nova Scotia. So in Nova Scotia, we have many Black communities that have been here for just such a long time, hundreds of years. And so whether for them or for, say... Uh, other black people like myself born and raised here or uh, people like my parents, you know, naturalized uh, Canadians who've been here for decades. Um, (laughs) That's one that really bugs us. It really, really annoys us because we get it all the time. And like you say, it really is a form of, of, of othering us, of, of putting us outside of Canada as much as this is our home, as much as for someone like myself, this is, what we know, this is all we know in terms of um, lived experience, in terms of going to school, you know, someone like myself, I spent my whole life here, I was born here. And, uh, and, and what's so annoying is the insistence on trying to, to place us outside of Canada, you know, so when I get that question, even if I say Canada, and then they'll say, Oh, I know that, but where are your parents from? And then I think, well, why are you asking me about my parents? You asked me about me. <laughs> why are we talking about my parents now? <laughs> When you said, where are you right. from? And then you want to know about my parents. Um, so so that's definitely a really, really frustrating one. And you know what it does too? It's, it, it's, um, it's indicative of a, sort of, uh, of a sort of power dynamic that, say, white people want to have, whether or not they're conscious of it. When, when the first thing you ask someone, a black person uh, or a person of color for that matter, is where are you from? Without even asking, oh, so what's your name? How are you? Without even that, what's your name? The first thing you want to know is where are you from? Well, one, that's very invasive because it's like, that's a piece of information of, 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 of you know, uh, of information about the person and says, well, and, and it's the idea of, well, why do you think you deserve to know? Um, so sets up a... a uh, a problematic power dynamic, you know, just the fact that they feel they're entitled to ask that question. And then sometimes if you put it back to them, so where are you from? They'll give you a shocked expression. Like, how could you even ask that? Isn't it obvious that I'm Canadian? <laughs> <laughs> so already, right. you know, there's this uh, unbalanced power dynamic. And that's what white people need to start thinking of. That's a very mundane example, a very, very mundane yet excellent examples i'm so happy you've brought it up and an example um, that people can use to to really become conscious of that of how that works of of how racial microaggressions work because that's a racial microaggression right there so um so i think it's it's a starting point and an excellent starting point for many white people and the first time i ever came across it or at least that i was conscious of it it was in 2006 during the olympics the Winter Olympics in Turin, and I was I was studying abroad that year, and I was in the Caribbean, and we got the CBC on a satellite dish somehow. I have no idea why that was the case, but it was. So I was watching <laughs> something, I think speed skating or something, and there was a, a Canadian of Chinese descent on the speed skating team, 
and I, I was watching it and somebody from um, uh, one of the Caribbean countries, I think it was an individual from Jamaica said mm-hmm. to me, like, oh, that person doesn't look like a Canadian. Like they don't look Canadian. And I thought, <laughs> well, that's, that's interesting. Like, why not? Like, like, what does a Canadian look like? So that's the first time I was conscious of it. And I was 21 years old at the time. Right. So I, I didn't grow up with it. And it's just, as you say, it's a daily thing for black people across the country. And yet here I am 21 years old. And this is the first time I'm conscious of it and not something that I have to experience. So it almost shows that at least for me, in in my experience growing up in not a very diverse community, just a complete lack of awareness of the experiences of others. And how then can I go on and try to create inclusive environments without really fully understanding or at least having an acknowledgement of what other people are experiencing day to day. And, and it, it just was to me an example of a, almost a gulf that exists or, or that how sheltered I was potentially as a kid, just not having to experience the same things that you experience on a daily, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Yes. If, Mm-hmm. That I, if that's a, I don't know if that's a fair way to say it. No, it is. It is. Mm-hmm. So I, that that takes me then to the issue of tokenism, and tokenism comes up in the book, and you and you talk about tokenistic portrayals of black people in classrooms. So, how would you describe tokenism, and how could someone identify tokenism when they are in a classroom, or even you see it frequently in pop culture, movies, television shows, you know, what is a telltale sign that a representation in something is tokenism? (laughs) A telltale sign is when there's only representation during Black History Month, for example. Uh, (laughs) um, And and then I I like how you bring up examples um, outside of the classroom. So in society and movies and TV shows, uh, we see that many Black actors are typecasted. They're only given certain roles as, say, the funny guy, or maybe if it's a female, as a seductress, or as a very loud, uh, let me say ratchet, you know, that word ratchet, uh, type of character, of maybe the, the baby mama or the welfare queen. So there's a lot of typecasting that happens just in larger society through media, uh, and that's very damaging as well. And it's those kind of images and ideas that that seep in to schools, that seep into classrooms, um, that give both students and educators alike this tokenistic idea of, of, of Black people. And then, of course, in in the classroom, the classic example is well, Black History Month, that's when we hear about Black people. That's when we hear about, um, say, successful or uh, inspirational Black leaders throughout Canada. There's this poster, there's a very beautiful poster, and I have no issue with the poster, that you'll see across all Canadian high schools, um, particularly around Black History Month, of, of different uh, Black Canadian leaders. And it's great to have that, but, you know, there needs to be attention given to that outside of of Black History Month so that, you know, the work, the achievements um, of Black people become normalized all throughout the year, all the time, you know. So so to answer your question about an example of tokenism, I think uh, Black History Month is, is is, is a perfect example. It's one of those things, too, where I I think it's part of the way curricula is written across the country that furthers it in that so much focus, at least in in history, I'll I'll stay on history because I I can't speak for what happens in like other social studies type classes. But I have a sense, though, of how history is taught across the country. And so much of the focus is on offices of power, whether at the federal level you're talking about who was the prime minister, who was in cabinet. And those for so long, including today, have been exclusionary spaces. And therefore, the black experience hasn't 
really been reflected when you're talking about purely political history, which tends to be the way a lot of history has been taught. Uh, and that's certainly the, the experience I had in school. That's we learned so much about prime ministers. Uh, and then we learned about the white settlers going west. I mean, that's basically the two narratives that existed in my history classes. So it, it part of it is is creating a curricula that doesn't just focus, is a, focus on the center, the seats of power across the country and focusing on Canada as a more holistic environment where there are multiple communities that are living day to day and experiencing life in this country. And that's where it becomes, to me at least, meaningful. So is, is that something that for you, meaningful representation is a more accurate sense or a more wholesome approach to what life was, is in Canada, as opposed to focusing on, as you say, Black history during Black History Month, and that's it, which is, as you say, very tokeny. whereas we could get a, a much more holistic approach to our education system. Yes, meaningful representation is what's needed. And I like how you speak about, um, you know, we have uh, various groups of Canadians, various cultures living in their different communities doing their thing on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, in Canada, we love this idea of a melting pot of cultures, that we have a melting pot of cultures. You hear politicians talking about it all the time, especially during their campaigns, you know, that we're so lucky to have this cultural melting pot in Canada and we're a multicultural and inclusive society. But it's all surface level. It's all very, very surface level. Because when it comes down to it, that is not, it's not appreciated at all. You know, it, it's really not appreciated. And uh, my mind just takes me um, to this right now, which is, you know, you see black students struggling uh, in elementary school, all across the, the levels of school. And then now I think of black professionals, black graduates, whether in law, whether in academia, and the stories are endless. You hear about their struggles as well. Um, you hear about the case of, of this black professor at, at York University, and it's now become a, a legal case. And you just say, wow. And, you know, it could be the highest office. It, it could be black politicians. I, I gave the example of black academics. These are people who are, um, they have PhDs, they're, they have chair positions, they're, um, they're, they're, they're full-time tenured professors, and, uh, and still the struggle persists. And for many of them, it's as if they have to, to beg to get support from their departments, support from their universities, in spite of the talent, the expertise, the, resource, the resources, and the hard work they bring to their institutions. So, you know, does Canada as a whole... Um, does say larger white Canadian society really appreciate this melting pot of of cultures and um, and this diversity we have and what it brings? You hear companies talking about it. You hear banks talking about their commitment to diversity um, and how you know they want to capitalize on on the the diversity of their staff and of their communities. But what does that really mean? Um, you know when it comes to putting that into practice, when it comes to uh, to companies and universities putting their money where their mouths are, you know? I say their mouths say one thing, but their purse strings say the other, you know? When, when schools, say elementary schools or high schools, talk about their commitment to diversity, their commitment to racialized students. I actually really haven't heard that one coming from... <laughs> High schools, yeah, maybe some, but their the commitment to racialized students, I, ha- I actually haven't heard that. <laughs> hopefully, we'll start hearing that soon. Um, and hopefully, it won't be verbal only. Hopefully, they will put their money where their, their mouths are, that they will bring in trained consultants, trained speakers, trained experts on uh, racism and diversity, on anti-Black racism, to do um, holistic, training with staff because uh, like I think you mentioned earlier the, the the whole basis is flawed the curriculum where we've started from you know um, it's all flawed because we've started from a point of of, of, of say a, a Eurocentric um, understanding a Eurocentric curriculum um, 
I mean, Canada as a nation has emerged from a place of of centering Eurocentrism, of centering white people. That's that's our history as a nation. You know, that's our colonial past. That's how Canada came into existence. So if that's how the nation itself came into existence, of course, that's how our curricula across the country came into existence. That's how our financial institutions across the country came into to existence and all our other institutions. Um, so the basis is flawed to begin with. Um, so I really hope to see that change. And uh, I really hope companies and schools will uh, will do what they say and will mean what they say. And it won't be for talk's sake only. In the book and in your experience, have you noticed that the there is a connection between that tokenism that you see in classrooms, in curricula, versus the culture of a school, which can be very different depending on the school itself, who is there, uh, who's, who are the teachers. You know, the, Each school does have its own unique sensibility to it. But for you, did you notice that there was a connection at all between the way in which Black people were portrayed in class compared to the way in which relationships were borne out in the the culture of the school as you walked around the social relationships, even things simple that, again, are daily, like eating lunch, right? Those sorts of things. Did you notice a connection between those? When there's been a a monoculture, which is what we have in a lot of... um, Canadian schools where the monoculture is white culture, where that's the dominant culture. Of course, it's so easy and sometimes it's a normal thing that students outside of that culture who do not exactly fit, they become tokenized. And for some, the pressure on them to fit in at the expense of their own identity becomes so great. And you see that happening to a lot of Black students. I mean, I see that. They try to fit in at the expense of their own cultural identity. They, they try to hide who they are. They become embarrassed of themselves, embarrassed of their parents, if their parents don't speak English properly or if their parents speak English with an accent or if they themselves speak a language at home, their cultural language. They don't want to talk about that at all. They don't want people to ask them questions about that. It's a sense of embarrassment, a sense of shame. Even if they take their cultural food to school at lunchtime, they can be embarrassed of that. They'll say, mom, they'll get mad at mom or dad. Don't pack me that, You know, give me money so I can buy from the cafeteria because my food, the curry smells too strong or that kind of thing. So. This kind of this kind of shame, which is really sad. So they try to fit in at the expense of, of their own identity. And um, what we have at the core here of what you, you're discussing, of what we're discussing, is this issue of validation, of not feeling validated. Yeah. And see, when you're in a, a monoculture, it's easy for you to be validated because you're validated every day not only by society, by the media, by the, the L'Oreal and the Pantene commercials, where you see people who look like you, where you see other white people, um, TV, the TV shows, the actors, you know. You, you can watch movies today with an entirely white cast, and it's incredible, 2021. And you can watch films with an entirely white cast, and you just think to yourself, wow. Did the producers not see this? How can you produce a film with an entirely white cast in 2021 in America or in Canada and not think to include a black person or an Asian person? You know, it's amazing. It's simply incredible. So anyway, that's another example of of how when when you're in that monoculture, you're validated by TV, by school, by wherever. And this lack of validation for black students, it it really hurts and it becomes... um, it turns into an issue of self-esteem. It turns into an issue of of even your progress in life. You know, sometimes you wonder, had things been different, had had some black students been raised in a different environment, would they have gone further in terms of their careers, in terms of their educational pursuits? Um, sometimes when I see black kids who have grown up in Africa or, or the Caribbean, if they migrate here at an older age, they're just filled with, um, 
with this sense of confidence, with this this sense with 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 a kind of validation, and and I've actually heard that directly from say black kids whose parents um, saw that things were going. Uh, sort of not in the right direction, whether in terms of their self-esteem or whether in terms of the kids were sacrificing themselves to fit in or something like that. And their parents said, you know what, I'm pulling you out. I'm going to send you to my home country in the Caribbean or in Africa for one year or to complete your high school. And those kids who come back, they say, you know, what? it was the best thing my parents could have done for me. Because when I was in that environment with the whole black people, I felt so validated. I felt like I could reach the moon or, you know, what have you. And um, so this issue of validation is, is so crucial. And this is something that's lacking for black kids. So that, that does lead into the question, because uh, the book talks about lived experience and the erasure of lived experience for black students in school. So you, you made some or you have some good examples there about validation and is is the validation that you you're talking about does that is that related to the erasure of lived experiences and the lack of validation of perhaps your experiences when, when you were in school compared to potentially your your white colleagues in classes is is it the the issue of validation does that really center around erasure of lived experiences as well yeah, it does. Without a doubt, it centers around um, the erasure of lived experiences or even sometimes um, Black students not feeling that their lived experiences are are worthy, you know? If maybe they talk about the time they visited their home, their 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 parents' country or their ancestral homeland, wherever, say, a country in Africa... And, uh, and when they come back from vacation there, from visiting their grandmother there, and then that time, and I remember in elementary school, sometimes a teacher would sit us down in a circle and say, what did you do this summer? And everyone would talk about what they did in the summer. And I, and I think for some Black students um, to say that, oh, you know, I was in Africa visiting wherever, this country and this city, they might even not feel that that's a worthy vacation experience, just given the views held about that that continent, you know, that it's a continent with starving people, with dying people, uh, with um, countries taken over by war, by disease, Ebola, we heard about Ebola happening there, all of the, the civil wars, the genocides, that kind of thing. So I think uh, some students would even feel embarrassed to share, you know, that's where I was spending my summer. So definitely the erasure of lived experiences. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I did some workshops in elementary school some time ago. And, uh, and part of the workshop, I was speaking to the kids about African countries and I was showing them some, some images and, uh, uh, and they were shocked. It was a diverse group of kids, so all races. And they were shocked when I showed them some of the cities, some of the capital cities, say like Dakar in Senegal or like Tunis in Tunisia, Luanda in Angola. These are very modern cities, you know, large populations, modern, bustling, high-tech. And they were shocked. They said, that's in Africa? That's in Africa? And one little boy, he said to me, wow. He said, that doesn't look like the real Africa. He was practically jumping out of his seat. He said, that doesn't look like the real Africa. And he was so amazed. And then at the end, he said to me, I want to learn more. I want to learn more. How can I learn more? Where can I learn more? And I thought to myself, wow, if only these were some of the images they could see. So what you say is correct. Yeah. The, yeah. That portrayal of Africa is, is typically not, well, one accurate is certainly in pop culture, I would argue. Uh, and and two, it, it does often get presented is uh, in terms and the images you see right are of poverty, disease, uh, war, and other than that, we don't really hear uh, in 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 the the culture here about Africa other than those things. And I was gonna say all of that is it's so deliberate too. Uh, it's so deliberate and it has impacts in so many ways and on so many levels. And I heard an African uh, 
politician speak sometime recently, and it was very interesting, some of the points she made. It was a South African politician, South African diplomat. And um, she said sometimes the media portrayals or what, what, what journalists do, it's, it's like a deliberate attack on the African continent. And she says, she said, how can I get people to invest in my country, to invest in South Africa? When I'm saying one thing, when I'm saying there's all this opportunity uh, for investment come, you know, foreign investors, and there's all this opportunity for growth. You know, uh, if I think of Nairobi and Kenya, for example, that's a tech hub in Africa. It's a tech hub. They have so many entrepreneurs, digital entrepreneurs. There's so much happening, you know, but, uh, but, Imagine if you have that, and then at the same time, you have uh, some of these media outlets saying another thing and generalizing the continent. If there's war in one place, in one country, uh, somehow that becomes the entire continent. No one is going to want to invest their dollars mm. there. So those portrayals, they're damaging. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it does also lead us to the issue of microaggressions and this is a topic that personally I've been trying more and more to read about, to listen to discussions and get a, a better sense of what they are. You know, I, I think most people would be able to identify and recognize overt racism and overt discrimination. It's, it, it can be pretty clear, but it's these little day-to-day -day things that we might not or someone like me might not always recognize. And it's the things that, as you, you've been talking about, can be pretty damaging. Or what strategies would you give somebody to be able to identify microaggressions in school or in, in the workplace or just day to day? You're, you're out walking around wherever you live. Uh, how can you best identify them? And what do you think the effect is when people are the victims of microaggressions <laughs> hmm, i think i want to start with the latter portion of your question what's the effect when you're the victim of microaggression okay. um so the effects the effects when you're a victim are many uh you know from self-esteem to to your feeling of of, of, of worthiness to to just wondering wow, why does someone feel they have the right to speak to me a certain way, to make certain assumptions about me, to to put me on the defensive, to, you know, to attack me based on something so irrational, based on something I have no control over, you know, based on your physical features, like your eyes, like your face, things like that. Um and it's really such a terrible place to be in if you're the victim of microaggressions because, uh, like I said, these are things that, 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 that you have no control over, yet you're being um, attacked, bullied, um, you know, precisely for that reason, for those things that you have no control over. Mm ways to identify them now and you see that's the thing and it's a very great point you make because you said beyond say overt forms of racism you haven't been to you realize that growing up you didn't have much knowledge of of things beyond the overt forms of racism and the thing is many okay in professional settings people know not to use the n-word if you, if it's a, an academic setting, or if it's, um, say, a bank or a law firm, the people working in those settings, hopefully they're professionals, they're usually all professionals, so they would know not to use the N-word because that's immediate, whether probation or dismissal or something of that nature. So, of course, the forms of racial microaggressions therefore become more covert. And, um, and see, we as Black people, we're, we're very familiar with that. We're, we're, we're very, we know that they're 
overt and and this is the hard part sometimes when having to explain to to white people because they'll say oh but how how is that a racial microaggression and um and and sometimes you you know because you know if it were someone else they would not be treated the same way and and sometimes we were spoken to and i can i even i have a lot of lived examples beyond what's in my high school journals um, lived examples from my friends, from family members, sometimes in occupying the highest positions within their um, within their sector, occupying the highest positions and still being spoken to as if they're trash. And you just know without a doubt that if they were a white male, they would not be spoken to that way. Um, so this is the issue with some of the microaggressions. And, and there's been so much research done on 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 how to identify them um sorry just one second i'm thinking again because it's such a this is such an excellent question um it's really such an excellent question and something that i i've dealt with in professional spaces you know as an employee what an example uh, and this is something that I see. I, I, so I follow baseball um, in my spare time. I, I really like it. And online, like say on Twitter, um, say if a, if a white player doesn't run out a ground ball to first base, nobody says anything. But if a black or Latino player doesn't, uh, the word lazy comes up a lot. Uh, you see people tweet that out. Like that, that strikes me as kind of what you're talking about. Generally speaking, uh, writers, fans don't use the word lazy when a white player does something like that, but will use it on a Latino or a black player. Like, is that an example? Yeah, it is. It is. And we saw a great example of that with the UEFA just recently in Europe the, um, with those young black Manchester United. I believe it was Manchester United. Um, uh, soccer players at the end of the game when they did the, um, the penalty kicks and they missed. Mm. And... The, the the next morning they woke up uh, to to the most horrific uh, aggressions to the most horrific forms of racism be, because they they missed the um, the penalty kicks and they're star athletes young at the start of their career and 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 imagine they took Britain to the finals they took Britain to the finals with their skill, with their talent, with their expertise in soccer. And then because they missed the the penalty kicks, all of a sudden it's as if they were no good. They were, like you say, they were lazy, they were uh, incompetent, they're not good soccer players, quote-unquote fans who've never even kicked a ball in their life, you know? Mm. And and so that's a perfect example of, of how it plays out where we're, we're held to different standards we're um we're 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 guilty until proven innocent until innocent until proven proven guilty and uh and so to be on the receiving end of that is it's a horrible thing and it it you know it's uh and microaggressions the thing is we talk a lot about unconscious bias, unconscious racism, and many microaggressions, they're conscious, they're deliberate. If you see how they play out, if you ask someone to give you their um, a lived experience with that, maybe in a professional context, and how it led to them being put on sick leave or, or leaving the workplace or whatever it is, if you were to to now do a little study of that, of that person's experience, you'd realize, wow that it was consistent and it was deliberate and it was unrelenting, you know? So, mm-hmm. so, so it's very deliberate action on the part of the aggressor. And that's something that, that people have to know and that people have to, to realize about this form of aggression, that it's deliberate. I guess where I want to go with this now is, Obviously, I, I, I would think anyone who is listening to this wants to be part of a solution to put an end to everything that you're describing and, and everything that you talk about 
in the book. It's, I think, again, the audience that we have would be universal in wanting to ensure that these things don't happen anymore and that say, that school is a, a safe, inclusive, welcoming place. So what strategies, what ideas potentially would you present as a way to put an end to the experiences that you have uh, in the book and that, that you had throughout your life and to create that space that we want schools to be, to, to actually make the words that we use when we describe schools as, as safe, inclusive locations, how can we actually make that a reality? First and foremost, there needs to be an understanding of how racism works. I think this is what's really lacking. And this is what's really lacking from a lot of white people, how racism works. And this is why it's hard to even have discussions about racism. Why many white people, they shy away from such discussions or they get angry. They even get angry if you're to bring up such such issues because they feel that, oh, I'm not a racist. You know, I have black friends or I don't use the N-word. That's not what racism is about. And, and so right there, that shows a lack of understanding, that shows ignorance. And, and you know, the fact of getting angry or being able to shy away uh, from such discussions is a form of privilege that Black people don't have. And, and uh, uh, since um, the murder of George Floyd, um, since the murder of George Floyd, I've, I've heard a lot of white people saying, oh, we have to have these uncomfortable discussions about racism. You know, they're uncomfortable. I've heard uh, company CEOs, you know, CEOs of, of very large Canadian companies saying these very uncomfortable discussions. And I always thought to myself, why are these discussions uncomfortable? Uncomfortable for whom? You know, what's so uncomfortable about speaking yeah. about someone's day-to-day lived experience it's not uncomfortable for that person because that person has to deal with it day in day out so why should it be uncomfortable for you the fact that you have this discomfort around it is a privilege and that in itself is a problem so um first and foremost there needs to be a real a true understanding of, of how racism works and people can start with google i always say that start with google commit to reading an article a day you know, you can start with Google, you can start by by contacting uh, someone who's familiar with this to educate you a little bit. Um, and then from there, it needs to be taught anti-Black racism in a critical and meaningful way. Uh, there needs to be an understanding on racial hierarchies, um, as well as the fact that very often throughout the world, Black people are at the very bottom of any racial hierarchy, um, and and as well an understanding an understanding of the conscious and and subconscious ideas uh, that people have these ideas that that black people are undeserving of certain things, you know that certain things should just be good enough that you shouldn't seek to to go beyond or ask for more because. Um, you know, just a certain amount is, is enough for you. For example, if you're paying for a certain service uh, to have food at a restaurant or a cafe and you ask them to wipe the, wipe the table and there's reluctance to that because they feel, you know, why should we wipe, wipe the table for you? Is that not good enough? And um, so this understanding uh, needs to come from teachers, from principals, from school administrators, and if it comes from them, from them, from that level, the, the level of educators, then students most definitely, most definitely will have that understanding. But it needs to start at the top. So, so that's what I say. And you know what? Um, to conclude, I say that it needs to happen now because the times we're living in are very critical. And not only do we have a lot of Black students in Canadian schools who were born and raised here, and who are all too familiar with such experiences, but we have a lot of newcomer students coming in. And um, many newcomer students, many of whom don't speak English. So, you know, it would be just doubly, um, it, would, it would be hard for them in a different way, sort of doubly taxing for them, if you wish. So this understanding needs to be developed as soon as possible, you know? Yeah, uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And that's why this book is so important and, and at such a critical time. And again, it's Black in School. 
Uh, Habiba, if people want to find the book or find more information about you and your work, not only uh, this book, but uh, I was, uh, I have to admit, I was unaware of Fistula prior to uh, looking up your bio and your background. So if you want to find out about your work in that area too, where can they find out more about you and potentially reach out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, so for anyone who's wondering, obstetric fistula, it's a woman's health condition. And so where you can find out more about my book, Black in School, and about the other work that I do is through my website. It's my first name, last name, habibajalo.com. And the book is available on Amazon. It's available through the press as well, University of Regina Press. It's available through Barnes and Noble and so many other platforms. Yeah, uh, absolutely. We will include those in the show notes. We'll include those. Uh, if if you're getting those, you can find it on Active History as well. We'll link to all that stuff and certainly encourage everybody to check out Black in School by Habiba Cooper Jallo. Habiba, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Thank you so much, Sean. It was a pleasure. So there you have it. My conversation with Habiba Cooper Jallo. Again, the book is Black in School, and I thank her for her time and her insights into both the book and her experience as a student. So certainly encourage everybody to check it out. Look in the show notes if you want more information about the book or Habiba herself. We got all that in the show notes or head on over to activehistory.ca. It's all linked up in the post associated with this episode. So that will do it for this week. Thank you everybody for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast. Do the likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff helps keep us going, helps other people find the show. And of course, if you want to let me know what you want to hear, please reach out historyslam at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham and do head on over to activehistory.ca. The site is still sort of in its summer hiatus, but coming back strong. I looked at the schedule for September, a lot of great stuff coming forth in the next 30 days. I'm, I'm very excited to see what this month will look like because the titles and some of the authors that we have listed on there uh, looks great. The other editors are working very hard and putting together some, some great material for September. So head on over to activehistory.ca to check that all out. So that's it for this week. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. We'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.